Good morning. Merry Christmas. Let me get situated here. Well, so a couple of weeks ago, <clears throat> Carlos reached out, got in touch with me to ask if I'd be willing to um, <clears throat> do the sermon uh, today. And my response um, was, well, I'd rather not. Um, <laughs> I, uh, I said, is there, really, is there no one else? I, it, I've uh, been remodeling the downstairs of my house, and I took on way more of it than I should have, and so I was scrambling after, after coming home from the office, working late into the night to just try to get the kitchen so that I could cook Christmas dinner. I'm a single dad trying to make Christmas happen for my family, and wah, wah, wah. <laughs> I said, so, you know, I guess if there's really nobody else, then, <clears throat> then let me know, but please try. And he said, <laughs> he said, I understand. <laughs> and then he called me back the next day. <laughs> so there's literally no one else. <laughs> so, so here we are. <laughs> and you might ask yourself, now what? <laughs> which is the title of the sermon, right? So, um, so let me tell you a little bit about uh, what I mean when I say now what. Um, as I reflect on Pastor Carlos's sermons the last couple of weeks, by the way, I always love, love, love his uh, Advent sermons. Um, they just, for me, always seem to hit to hit home. And, uh, it, you know, he covers the same material in different ways. It's wonderful. But, <clears throat> but these last couple of sermons, um, as wonderful as they were, what struck me almost as much as anything else uh, was what you don't know and what you don't get a chance to see or talk about. And here's what I mean by that. The wise men a couple weeks ago and the shepherds last week, right? They each heard from God in a miraculous way, a miraculous way tailored to who they are. <clears throat> the wise men through their learning, uh, interpreted the heavens and saw that the king was coming and went on this epic journey <clears throat> to worship the, the newborn king and found him just as the Lord told them in the stars and were able to give gifts and to worship Emmanuel, God with us. And the shepherds, the, the Lord cracked the sky with an angel in the middle of the, of the night and revealed to them through these miraculous, spectacular ways that the child was born and how they would find him. And they went and they did. And they were able to testify. <clears throat> but at the conclusion of both of those stories, at both of those passages, you ever notice what happened? They left. They went back. They went home. The wise men, by a different route, because they ignored Herod's order to tell him where the child was, right? But they returned to whatever wise men return to. I don't know. The, the academy, the politics, um, <clears throat> their studies, um, I don't know. But they, you know, fr frustration, whatever they have, they return to on a long journey, which the way back probably was not nearly as exciting as it was the way there. And the shepherds returned rejoicing to the field where their sheep were waiting for them to sleep on the ground, and to deal with probably an unreasonable boss. 
right? I mean, tending sheep was, is still a thing. It didn't go away. They had to go back. They returned. I mean, think about it. After this miraculous, amazing thing, and Jesus didn't even enter public ministry for another 30-some-odd years, right? So when those shepherds got back to the sheep, this wonderful thing had happened, they had to have been thinking, now what? Right? That was great, God. That was awesome. Now what? And for them, I don't know the answer. Do you? I don't know. The wise men, we don't know. <clears throat> I assume that it changed their lives forever, but not right then. Not right then. They still had to do what had to be done. This question, now what, is lurking beneath the surface for me all the time. I don't know about you. And it bubbles up at key moments, times in my life, where it just <laughs> comes out. God, I've got a big decision to make, and I have no idea what to do. Now what? God, that was amazing. That was awesome. That was a wonderful answer to prayer or a, a way that a, an encounter with you, Lord, or the mission trip or the time that he used me. That was awesome. God, wow. Now what? God, that is totally unfair and unjust. And there is nothing I can do about it. Now what? Lord, I completely screwed that up. I blew it. And I don't see any way out. Now what? Hard times are coming. I'm not sure what to do. Now what? God, this is horrible. And I don't think I can bear this loss. Now what? So let's read our text. This is Psalm 37. It's a psalm of David. Fret not yourself because of evildoers. Be not envious of wrongdoers. For they will soon fade like the grass and wither like the green herb. Trust the Lord and do good. Dwell in the land and befriend faithfulness. Delight yourself in the Lord and he will give you the desires of your heart. Commit your way to the Lord. Trust in him and he will act. He will bring forth your righteousness as the light and your justice as the noonday. Be still before the Lord and wait patiently for him. Fret not yourself over the one who prospers in his way, over the man who carries out evil devices. Refrain from anger and forsake wrath. Fret not yourself, it tends only to evil. For the evildoers shall be cut off, but those who wait for the Lord shall inherit the land. In just a little while the wicked will be no more. Though you look carefully at his place, he will not be there. But the meek shall inherit the land and delight themselves in abundant peace. The wicked plots against the righteous and gnashes his teeth at him. But the Lord laughs at the wicked, for he sees that his day is coming. The wicked draw the sword and bend their bows to bring down the poor and needy, to slay those whose way is upright. Their sword shall enter their own heart and their bows shall be broken." Better is the little that the righteous has than the abundance of many wicked. For the arms of the wicked shall be broken, and the Lord, but the Lord upholds the righteous. The Lord knows the days of the blameless, and their heritage will remain forever. They are not put to shame in evil times. In the days of famine they have abundance. But the wicked will perish. The enemies of the Lord are like the glory of the pastures. They vanish. Like smoke, they vanish away. 
The wicked borrows but does not pay back, but the righteous is generous and gives. For those blessed by the Lord shall inherit the land, but those cursed by him shall be cut off. The steps of a man are established by the Lord when he delights in his way. Though he fall, he shall not be cast headlong, for the Lord upholds his hand. I have been young and now I am old, yet I have not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. He is ever lending generously, and his children become a blessing. Turn away from evil and do good, so you shall dwell forever. For the Lord loves justice. He will not forsake his saints. They are preserved forever. But the children of the wicked shall be cut off. The righteous shall inherit the land and dwell upon it forever. The mouth of the righteous utters wisdom, and his tongue speaks justice. The law of God is in his heart, and his steps do not slip. The wicked watches for the righteous and seeks to put him to death. The Lord will not abandon him to his power or let him be condemned when he is brought to trial. Wait for the Lord and keep his way, and he will exalt you to inherit the land. You will look on when the wicked are cut off. I have seen a wicked, uh, the wicked, a ruthless man, spreading himself like a green laurel tree. But he passed away, and behold, he was no more. Though I sought him, I could, he could not be found. Mark the blameless, and behold the upright, for there is a future for the man of peace. But transgressors shall altogether be altogether destroyed. The future of the wicked shall be cut off. The salvation of the righteous is from the Lord. He is their stronghold in the time of trouble. The Lord helps them and delivers them. He delivers them from the wicked and saves them because they take refuge in Him. The Word of the Lord. So here's what I want you to take away from this message today if, um, I don't, if I don't get a chance to summarize it. Here's the deal. There is no power struggle. And your Heavenly Father has not forgotten you. But faithfulness and waiting on the Lord will make enjoying His goodness the song of your life forever. There is no power struggle. And you have not been forgotten. But faithfulness and waiting on the Lord will make enjoying His goodness the song of your life forever. All right, now, full disclosure. <clears throat> um, I'm going to tread, uh, um, go where angels fear to tread. Fear to tread. Um, but I think I have to do this in order for you to understand uh, at least completely, where I'm coming from as I read this passage and take comfort in God's promises. I don't know what you think of the pandemic <laughs> or the response to the pandemic. Uh, I know that in a group even this size, and we are small today, that there is surely a variety of conflicting opinions on every aspect of both. I know that. So let me tell you a little bit about what I think. Um, and you don't have to agree with me. How about that? So I, as, as serious and as um, dangerous as COVID can be for some people, um, and as important and crucial as it is for those who are vulnerable to it to be protected, I also believe that this pandemic has been used as an opportunity and an excuse for those 
who do not fear God and who have no regard for the truth to expand power. I'm sorry, that's what I think. That's what I see. And it causes me to fret. It causes me to fret. Because I look uh, and I see what, uh, what appears to me to be a growing acceptance of authoritarianism. My governor thinks he can tell me who I can and can't have at my house to celebrate Christmas. And I'm not okay with that. And I'm upset and worried and I'm afraid. And yes, I'm afraid because of a, a disease that can cause harm, but I'm also stunned and afraid by a response that seems to me so out of proportion and so overbearing that I just feel powerless and I don't know what to do. Now, guess what? I know that some of you wonder how I can even live with myself because (laughs) your perspective and opinion is so different from mine. Here's my response to that. I love you. And I hope that we can have that disagreement graciously because we respect each other's opinions. And I could be wrong. Guess what? It wouldn't be the first time. And I know that. And I also believe that our respect for those who disagree with us needs to go beyond just saying so, right? Which is, you know, I think about our brothers and sisters at Linhaven Prez who have not even met in person yet since last spring. And this place will be cleaned within an inch of its life and sanitized when we're done today. I promise you that. Why? Because it matters. Because we care about them and we love them. And so there's a give and a take and a compromise and a respect and a graciousness that goes with our differing perspectives and opinions on even this. Is there not? And that's as it should be. And so I hope you'll continue listening to me. Maybe Carlos will never let me preach again now that I've actually said those things. But it's in the room, right? It's an elephant. We know that we have strong opinions on these things and that we don't all agree. So why not acknowledge it? Good grief. Okay? Here we are. Guess what? We love each other. Praise Jesus. Okay, but that informs you a little bit about why this psalm matters so much to me at this point in time. And it's not just because of that. Um, it's because of everything, every occasion, every opportunity that comes around in my life that causes me to ask that question. Now what? Um, All right, so a couple of things about this psalm. Uh, First of all, uh, you'll notice when you read it, um, it's not like a lot of the other psalms that you're used to reading, uh, which are psalms of praise and worship. Uh, or maybe even a lament, or crying out to the Lord in in distress, uh, and struggling to exercise faith and return to Him. It's not not really like that. Um, It is rather a psalm of instruction. It reads more like a chapter in Proverbs, doesn't it? Um, And so that's a little different from what we're used to in the book of Psalms. We also know that it is written by King David, and that it is written uh, when he's old, later in his life. Um, verse 25, uh, he says, I have been young and now I am old. 
but I've not seen the righteous forsaken or his children begging for bread. Right? So he's old, which means that that David, the author of this psalm who's giving us this instruction, has experienced most of the things that we know about him already, probably, at the time that he's writing this. Right? He had been anointed king at a young age as a young man. He, um, he had slain Goliath. He had had exploits in battle. He uh, had been um, accepted into the uh, courts of uh, King Saul and loved uh, and then eventually hated and then eventually hunted by him, right? Um, he had been anointed king, but there was no clear way for that to actually happen because Saul was still on the throne and had no intention of not being on the throne. You remember that? Talk about now what? God, you've anointed me to be king, but I'm not. And the king is trying to kill me now what? Right? He hung out in the desert, uh, hiding in caves, wondering what comes next. How is the Lord going to do this? And if you recall, so I think I think we are hearing that David in this psalm. When he did have the throne, he succumbed to the temptation, didn't he, to abuse his power? And he took Bathsheba, the wife of Uriah. And he slept with her and she became pregnant. And then he tried to cover it up and hide it. And so much so that he sent Uriah to his death in battle intentionally. And I assume would have continued to try to cover it up, but for the prophet Nathan who confronted him, which led to his repentance. He suffered a coup attempt from one of his sons, Absalom had to flee the palace in the capital city and hide. And there was a civil war that eventually brought him back and his son died. So by the time David has been young and is now old and is writing this psalm of instruction, he had been through it and he had seen it. And so he's got some things to tell us and he knows of what he speaks because he had had many occasion to ask, now what? And you might be tempted to think as you look at the psalm, um, you know, initially, understandably, that it's really about envy. And it is definitely about envy, right? It's about the unfairness of somebody who is wicked and prospers seemingly, and I struggle, and I play by the rules, and it's not fair, and I resent it. So it's definitely about envy. But that is not all it's about, I would argue. You know, it says at the beginning, fret not and don't be envious. And the fretting, I think, comes as you read through the psalm from not just this idea of unfair, but this idea of oppression. This idea of the wicked have the ability to impact my life with their success and they are godless, and I'm afraid, and it makes me angry. I think that's what's going on here. Uh, da, 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 da. You look at 7 and 8. Fret not over the one who prospers. This is verses 7 and 8. Who prospers in his way, who carries out evil devices, right? Evil devices that mess with me. See verse 35, a wicked, ruthless man 
That has an impact on me, that ruthlessness. See verse 19, it talks about evil times and famine. Okay, not just jealousy or envy, although that's definitely part of it. But the stuff that happens that makes me angry, that I'm afraid of, other people who I can't control, and yet, here I am, subject to their godlessness because they don't fear Him and they have no regard for the truth. And so I ask, what now? Now what? All right, so um, in honor of Carlos, three quick points and then we'll get out, okay? Um, I think this uh, goes along with sort of how this psalm naturally divides itself up. Not precisely, but sort of generally. And that is point one is this. The good that we desire is found only in God, only in Him. We are in His hands. The good that we desire is found only in Him. We are in His hands. Point two is going to be justice for those who reject God is found only in Him. They are in His hands. And then finally, the faithfulness and goodness of the Lord toward us is eternal. Which means it started long before we even showed up. And it is now. And it will be forever. So the good that we desire and long for is found only in Him. We are in His hands. Those who reject God, their justice is also found only in Him. They are in His hands. And the faithfulness and goodness of the Lord toward us is eternal. It's now and it's forever. All right, so number one. The good that we desire is found only in Him. So here's a real just in-my-face part of this psalm, part of the message, and that is what I long for cannot be acquired by fixing the problem. (laughs) By fixing the problem. By that I mean my anger, my distress, my fretting, and the temptation to go try to do something about it is not going to yield the results that I'm after. I don't like that because it doesn't fit well with my personality. Maybe it doesn't with yours either. But that's what the teaching here is, right? That's what the instruction is. Because, because what David is about to tell me doesn't have anything to do with going and throwing down and taking care of business with the evildoers that are in my craw. He's just not going to tell me to do that, right? Um, what is it that I desire? What is it that I long for? Well, I don't know. I took a shot. But I want to be at peace. I want to enjoy the fruits of my labor. I want the love and the fellowship of my family, my friends, and my community. I want to live and work and worship before God in the land of His promise. That's what I want. I want shalom. I want things to be okay. I want to enjoy His blessing. I want to have peace. I want to live before Him and in His presence and enjoy what He's given. And so every time something threatens that, I get agitated and I begin to fret and I begin to ask, God, really? Now what? Uh, I want to address this idea of the land because uh, you might notice, you probably didn't count when I was reading, of course, but 
But Psalm 37 refers six times to either dwelling in or inheriting the land. This idea of the land is the promised land. It's the place of peace. It's the place where shalom happens. Uh, The idea was first introduced in Genesis 15 when God made promises to Abraham, right? Uh, And he said, I will give you the land that I'm sending you to. And you'll be a sojourner there, but I'm giving it to you and to your descendants forever. And And that idea of the land as the place of promise persisted, of course, throughout the history of Israel. And when they were delivered from slavery in Egypt and then wandered in the desert for 40 years, that's what they were after. They were after the promised land, a land flowing with milk and honey, a land where they could put down roots and live in peace before God and enjoy the fruits of their labor and the fellowship and and tenderness of their family and their friends and their community, where they could have shalom. That's what the land represents. It's the rest of God that comes from his blessing where you stop wandering and enjoy his grace. That's the land. And so when, when David refers to inheriting the land and when he refers to dwelling in the land, right, I, he's referring to that. He's refer, they, like his readers would have understood the promised land. They would have understood the place of peace, the place of God's favor, flowing with milk and honey where I have rest. And I want to expand on that and make sure that we understand that that, that promise to Israel was of a real place that they went through a lot to get to. And it was in fact a blessing, but arriving there did not fix the real problem, did it? Why? Because when Joshua took them across the Jordan into the promised land, they took with them their sin. And so arriving there did not fix it. It was a type, a shadow. Maybe it it was an advance, right? An illustration on the real promise land. Hebrews 3 and 4, if you go look at it and read it, it talks about the promise of rest for the Israelites wandering in the desert and the desire to enter that rest across into the promised land. And what does Hebrews tell us the rest is, really? It's Jesus. It's Jesus. It's the rest that we receive in Jesus through faith in him in his sacrifice for our forgiveness. Because no matter where we go or no matter what we do, but for the grace of God in Jesus, we take our sin with us and it won't be, it won't be fixed. Right? It won't be fixed. No matter what circumstance, situation, relationship that we can figure out how to get the way we think it needs to be, it won't be fixed. But for God's grace in Jesus, through his sacrifice. And so we are told to put our faith and our trust and dwell in him, our true rest, the real promised land, the peace that comes from the rest of of Jesus. So only in him. And that's what David is talking about. So here's what he says, right? Here's our response. If we follow his instruction, we're to trust God. We're to dwell in the land, do good, 
be faithful. Delight ourselves in the Lord. Commit our way to Him. Roll our lives over onto Him. That's what that means. Be still and wait patiently. Wait for the Lord. Notice, none of those instructions have anything to do with addressing what we think the problem is, which is the circumstance or the wicked person or the famine or the hard times or the uncertainty or the fear. They all have to do with us turning to the Lord, trusting Him, dwelling in the land, doing good, being faithful, delighting ourselves in Him, committing our ways to Him, being still and waiting patiently for Him. And He promises that when we do that, when we look to Him in trust and faithfulness, that He will give us the desires of our heart, that He will act, that He will bring forth our righteousness and our justice, that we will inherit the land and delight in an abundant peace that our heritage will remain forever, that you will not be put to shame in hard times, that you'll have abundance in the middle of famine, that you'll be able to be generous even. And when you fall, you will, he will hold you by the hand so that you will not be cast down. He will protect you from the wicked, never forsake you or your children, and your future will be of peace. That's the shalom that we seek. It's what we're after. It's what our heart longs for. And it doesn't have anything to do with fixing the problem the way we see it, does it? I don't know. I, it's just, it doesn't, I, maybe it makes perfect sense to you. But my instinct is to go after the problem and to try to fix it. And to bring that guy down. That's just kind of how I, how I function, right? It's wrong. That's not going to answer it. That's not going to give me what I long for. It's only in Him that I find what I long for. It's in trusting and resting in Him. It's in waiting on Him. It's in putting down my roots and dwelling and doing good. It's in delighting in Him intentionally, on purpose. Lord, I love you. I delight in you. Help me to know you. That's where it is. That's where it's at. It has nothing to do with the problem. And then his promises begin to flow. 2 Corinthians says that for our sakes he made him to be sin who knew no sin, that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The promised land is Jesus. And if I dwell there, put my roots there, and his promises begin to flow and the peace that I seek begins to characterize my life. The good that we desire is found only in him because we are in his hands. Not in the hands of our circumstances and not in the hands of our oppressors, not in the hands of the governor and not in the hands of the wicked person who prospers in his way. That's not the problem. And so that's not where the answer is. Number two, justice for those who reject God is found only in Him also. They are in His hands. Now, this seemed at first blush like a bit of a Passover for me. Uh, but when it comes down to it, it's really not. And the reason is because of the instinct that I told you about. I don't know. I'm a lawyer. Um, 
like to go out and take care of business and fix things. And people who need their comeuppance, I sometimes think it's my job to give it to them. It's not right. It's not okay. But I feel that way sometimes. But that is the exact opposite of what I'm being taught in Psalm 37. What the wise old king is teaching me. The promise of God to deal justly with the wicked means that it is not my responsibility or even my place. Now I'm not saying defund the police, right? Abolish the justice system. That's not my point. Right? When, when we are doing good and going through the process of living life and, and you know, <clears throat> seeking justice, loving mercy, when we are doing these things, when we are living in obedience to God, um, the, the, the justice will flow and accountability for wickedness will become part of who we are. But that's not where I find my peace. And it is not my responsibility to deal with with the wicked. In other words, this epic quest to go vanquish evil is not my job. I love the movies, but it's not my job. What I'm saying is that in the face of injustice, hard times, oppression, when we cry out to God, now what? The answer is not to focus on the circumstances or the oppressor, but rather to focus on trusting Jesus and being faithful to his calling right in front of us, dwelling in peace, doing good, delighting in the Lord, rolling all of our ways and concerns over onto him, being still and waiting for the Lord. James 1 uh, says this, the anger of man does not produce the righteousness of God. Can't get any more plain than that. There's a longer passage I'm going to read to you. This, I think, settles the matter definitively for my heart. It's from Romans 12. It's about living as Christians. Let love be genuine. Abhor what is evil. Hold fast to what is good. Of course. Love one another with brotherly affection. Outdo one another in showing honor. Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. Rejoice in hope. Be patient in tribulation. Be constant in prayer. Is it sounding familiar? Contribute to the needs of the saints and seek to show hospitality. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and do not curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Do not be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Repay no one evil for evil, but give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all. Beloved, never avenge yourselves, but leave it to the wrath of God. For it is written, vengeance is mine. I will repay, says the Lord. To the contrary, if your enemy is hungry, feed him. If he is thirsty, give him something to drink. For by doing so, you will heap burning coals on his head. Do not be overcome by evil, but overcome evil with good. Dwell. Be faithful. Trust in Him. Wait on the Lord. Enjoy His goodness. Delight yourself in Him. Not my job. 
to vanquish the wicked. He's got it. He's got it. They're in his hands, not mine. And even if I could do it, which I can't, I wouldn't find the peace that I seek because that's not where it is. There is no power struggle. I see it like a power struggle. That's how I feel. You know, it's between me and them. But it's not. It's between me and God, and it's between them and God. He's got it. There is no power struggle. And I've not been forgotten. The evils, the, the evildoers, the wicked, the oppressors, they are not an issue for God, not a concern, and neither should they be for me. My focus and delight should be on Him and His goodness. That's where the answers are to the question, now what? All right, so the good that I seek is found only in Him. And the justice for the wicked is also found only in Him. My final point, the faithfulness and goodness of the Lord toward us is eternal. It started long before we even showed up, right? Christ was slain from the foundations of the earth. The stars in the heavens from creation began the process of showing the wise men that the Savior was born. <clears throat> I was talking to my daughter Catherine um, the other day uh, I think it was on Christmas and um, she was saying she had a personal sort of Christmas devotional before she went to bed by the way that was like what two in the morning anyway um, <laughs> and that she read uh, I assume from Genesis 15 uh, about the promises to Abraham, which I've already referred to that passage today, right? So how about that? But she said she read it, and she said, you know, that's really where the Christmas story began, was with the promises that were made to Abraham. And I said, yeah, you're right. She said, well, other than, you know, in the garden, um, that's when, that's when the, the process began and the promise be began to be revealed. And so really, it's a Christmas passage when God promised to Abraham that his descendants would be as the stars of the sky um, and that there would be a promised land for them to go to. And as we continue to that conversation, one of the things we observed was that those promises to Abraham were, were crazy beyond what he was even able to understand, right? Right? And not only that, but in time, they were partly something that he would experience in his life on this earth, and they were also, even more so, stuff that he would not see until he had gone to heaven. In other words, and he didn't know the difference, right? All he knew was these promises from God and this covenant that was cut, right? You know, when he looked at the, at the, at the sky, God said, look at the stars, count them if you can, that's the number of your descendants. The land that you're going to walk on is going to belong to you and your descendants. It's a promised land, 
of peace that I'm giving to you and to your descendants forever. Now, he, he experienced some of those promises during his lifetime, didn't he? He and Sarah in their old age had a child. That was part of the promise. He enjoyed the blessings of God and the favor of God in the land where he was a sojourner. But there he was. He saw it. He experienced it. His feet were on it as he walked, right? But there were parts of that promise that he didn't even have the ability to understand. He had no idea that you and I were actually part of his descendants through faith in Jesus. He had no idea. Right? He didn't really know what was going to happen even with his own children and grandchildren and great-grandchildren. The oppression that they would suffer, the slavery that they would endure, the wandering that they would have to deal with, and then the promised land that they would enter into and the relief that they would receive. And he certainly didn't understand that that relief was only a shadow and a picture of the real relief that was coming in Jesus. So it was for now, it was for him, it was for his life, but it was also for us and it was also forever. And he didn't know the difference and he couldn't parse it out. And I think that's part of what's going on in Psalm 37 is that the promises here are for us and they're for now and they're for our lives, but they are also forever. You notice dwelling in the land and inheriting the land are both there. We're told to dwell, we're told to enjoy his goodness in the land, but we're also told that we will inherit the land. And that's because our inheritance is now. We have a down payment. We have the Holy Spirit. We have redemption in our lives. Goodness in the land of the living. Yes, but also what? Brokenness and oppression and the wicked that tempt us to be angry and to fret. And so the land is here and it's coming. That's not a new concept. It's here and it's coming. His goodness and his blessing and his promises are for now and they're forever. And I don't really know how to parse them out in here. I don't know what parts of it I'm going to enjoy during my lifetime, but I know it's real and I know it's for me. And maybe that's okay because what I'm living in right now on this earth is part of the eternity that he has given me these promises for. And the two kind of meld together. I don't know if that makes any sense to you, but that's, that's kind of where I've arrived, is that, is that eternity and now are part of the same thing. God's promise, I see part of it now, I experience it more and more. His blessings and His goodness and His sustenance and His provision and His peace in my life now as I trust Him and wait on Him and dwell in the land. But also what's coming. Hallelujah forever with him in the promised land. Okay, so I'm going to finish up with this. I'm going to read a passage from uh, Jeremiah. And this was um, after... um, after the Israelites had been driven into exile into Babylon from Jerusalem. Remember, Jeremiah wept over that. And, and this is what God told Jeremiah. 
about his people in exile. I don't know about you, but sometimes I feel like I'm in exile. And I think that's an okay thing to feel, is that, is that who I am in Christ is not something that the world understands. And what I think and what I believe as I grow in him, and he has an impact on, on me, <clears throat> is something that the world doesn't appreciate. And I'm here, but I'm not of here, right? We're in it, but not of it. We are citizens of heaven. And that's our true home. That's our promised land. And so here is what Jeremiah says. This is chapter 29, 4 through 7. It says, Thus says the Lord of hosts, the God of Israel, to all the exiles whom I have sent into exile from Jerusalem to Babylon, build houses and live in them, plant gardens and eat their produce. Skip a bit. Uh, take wives for your sons and give your daughters in marriage that they may have sons and daughters. Multiply there and do not decrease, but seek the welfare of the city where I have sent you into exile and pray to the Lord on its behalf. For its welfare will you will find is your welfare. I guarantee you that the Israelites in exile in Babylon were asking the question, God, now what? And the answer is here, which echoes Psalm 37. Now what? Now what? Trust me. Dwell. Live your life and be faithful to the things that I've called you to that are right in front of you. Don't take on yourself to fix the things that are my responsibility, says the Lord. You be faithful. Carlos told me one time, a long time ago, he said, the older I get as a Christian, the more my life becomes about being faithful and the less it becomes about the results. That stuck with me for years. I've said it before. That's what this is. This is God saying, I got it. The results are not your responsibility. Your responsibility is to trust me. Dwell in the land and do what you know to do. Be faithful to the callings that I've given you. Plant the garden. Eat the produce. Build the relationships. Love your family. Wait on the Lord, for he is good. And he will act and bring forth our justice and our righteousness. The good that we seek is found only in him, not in anything that we can do about problems that we perceive. And the justice for those who reject him is not our responsibility. It's his. And his faithfulness and his goodness is for now and it's forever at the same time. There is no power struggle. And you have not been forgotten. But faithfulness and waiting on the Lord will make enjoying His goodness the song of your life forever. Let's pray. God, thank you for your word. Thank you for your promises. Thank you for the wisdom of an old king. Lord, I pray that you would cause the things that you have told us today 
not the things that I have said, to sink into our hearts and to give us comfort and assurance that we would in fact dwell in the promised land of peace that you have not only promised but given us today. Lord Jesus, we love you and we praise you. It's in your name that we pray. Amen.